In accordance with the prior agreement of the debaters, the capitalists will start off, beginning with Dr. Peikoff. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Our topic this evening is capitalism versus socialism, which is the moral system. To answer, we have to know what is morality. What is the ethical standard we're going to use to judge a political system? We cannot just assume that everyone knows or it's in the Bible. We've got to state and validate our moral views at the outset because that's what's going to decide this debate. Now, our side holds that the standard of morality is man's life, that which man requires in order to sustain his life. Whatever man requires by his nature in order to survive, we regard as the good or the moral. Man's crucial tool of survival is his reason, his mind. The mind is our only means of dealing with reality, grasping facts, acquiring reliable knowledge. The mind is the basic source of every pro-life value. Take as one example the immense, unprecedented wealth that you see all around you in the West, the wealth created since the Industrial Revolution and capitalism. This wealth was not produced by muscles, but essentially by thought, the thought of the scientists who discovered new knowledge, of the inventors who used the knowledge to create new products, of the businessmen who used their minds to conceive and organize large-scale productive enterprises. Physical labor by itself is not what creates wealth. Every earlier age had an abundance of physical labor. What creates wealth and all human values is thought. That's point one. Morality means thinking, reasoning, exercising, and living by one's mind. Point two. Life requires selfishness. A living organism has to be the beneficiary of its own actions. It has to pursue specific objects for itself, for its own sake and survival. Life requires the gaining of values, not their loss. Achievement, not renunciation. Self-preservation, which is selfish, not self-sacrifice. If life is the standard, then morality cannot consist of sacrifice. Sacrifice is incompatible with the requirements of human life. And I mean here any kind of sacrifice, whether of oneself to others or of others to oneself. Many people think our choice is only sacrifice yourself to others, which they call altruism, or sacrifice others to yourself, which they call selfishness. Cut your own throat for your neighbor's sake or cut their throats for your own sake. Either way, however, one thing remains the same. Somebody's throat gets cut and the dispute is merely over who is to be the victim. If life is the standard, however, we should not be reduced to haggling over victims. We should oppose on principle the idea of throat cutting, in other words, of sacrifice. A selfish man, in the sense I advocate, does not sacrifice others to himself. Selfishness means each man is an end in himself, neither sacrificing himself to others nor others to himself. A man should live independently, by his own mind and effort with no victims. Such a man uses his mind to the fullest and acts accordingly. In other words, I'm talking about rational self-interest. And in dealing with others, this means trading value for value by mutual consent to mutual advantage. It means each party respecting the sovereignty and the freedom of the others with no sacrifice either way. The ethics of social service the ethics of self-sacrifice is what is destroying the world today. Who is supposed to sacrifice and to whom, according to the conventional theories that we hear everywhere? Are the incompetent supposed to sacrifice to the able? The parasites to the productive? Obviously, no. The able and productive have nothing to gain from such a sacrifice. It's supposed to work in reverse, we're told. The able are to sacrifice to the incompetent, the productive to the parasites, the thinkers to the mindless, the healthy to the afflicted. In other words, the common denominator is the, the successful at living are to be penalized because they are successful in the name of rewarding the failures who get rewarded because they are failures. You could not invent a more anti-life code of morality. 
and the only practical effect it can have is to strike down all who succeed at life and thereby drag down the whole human race, as you now see happening all over the world. Properly, if you are in trouble through no fault of your own, and I stress that this has to be a marginal issue. If everyone was in such trouble, the human race couldn't exist. If you are in such trouble, you have to depend on the voluntary generosity and private charity of those who are not in trouble. You have to ask for help as a favor, not as a right. You cannot use your trouble as a club over your neighbor's head. You have to recognize that other men have a right to exist too, that your suffering does not make them your slave. In other words, this is not the function of the government. What is? Well, Dr. Ridpath will be covering this point, but in essence, we hold the government's function is to protect each individual precisely from being sacrificed by others or to others, to protect the independence of each man's mind, in other words, to protect his individual rights and leave every man free to act on his own judgment and for his own profit. And this is exactly what capitalism is. And I want to stress this. Capitalism is not what we have in the West today. I'm talking about laissez-faire capitalism. In other words, the complete separation of state and economics. Not government by pressure groups. Not government favors for any group, whether businessmen, labor, farmers, or consumers. Not tariff protection, nor subsidies, nor franchises, nor any kind of handouts or welfare functions. I'm speaking of government as an impartial arbiter to prevent citizens from violating individual rights and otherwise hands off, which is what laissez-faire means. Capitalism is the system that leaves man free to function. It leaves each individual free to live by his own mind and judgment, pursue his own goals, trade voluntarily with others. It's the system based on the morality of rational self-interest. Socialism is the opposite. However socialists may protest that the individual will benefit under their system, the fact remains socialists claim that the standard of value is not the life of the individual, but the welfare of the group, whether they call it the collective, the community, the race, the nation, the proletariat. They hold that it's the duty of the individual to serve the group, to sacrifice for others, as decreed by the group's representative and spokesman, the all-powerful state. This viewpoint must mean ultimately the enslaving of the individual by the state, and therefore the crushing of thought, production, achievement, and finally of life itself. In the 19th century, when the West came closest to capitalism, the result was the highest standard of living and the longest interval of peace in mankind's history. The moral is the practical. As for socialism, look at the collapse of England, look at Soviet Russia, and remember that Nazi Germany meant National Socialist Germany. The results of socialism everywhere, am I out of time? Yes, you are. Are as bad as they could have been predicted. Thank you. Dr. Vickers will lead off for the socialists. Wow. Wouldn't it be fascinating if you came to a debate and one side said to the other, you got me. It's not going to happen tonight, ladies and gentlemen. My honorable opponent talked a whole lot about man. I want to start by talking about a woman. She happens to be my favorite woman. She happens to be my mother. And she always gives me good advice. Her advice for tonight was, Jill, remember someone else washed their underwear. And remember your manners. And since uh, you're playing the hometown team, get your thank yous out of the way at the beginning. And so I'd like to do that. I want to begin by thanking Peter for his kind introduction. I want to thank my colleagues for this opportunity to present an important issue to you. I want to thank a really super lady, Sandra Shaw, who pulled this all together. But most of all, I want to thank you for being here to listen to a debate. Now, Peter described me as a feminist and a socialist, and I'm both of those. And what I want to talk about tonight is why I think that socialism is the only truly moral system when it's built on a feminist base 
and why I think that it is impossible for women in this country or anywhere else in the world to achieve with men a moral society built on the selfishness of laissez-faire capitalism. The issue we've gathered to talk about is the relative morality of the human orders involved in these two systems. I stress the word relative because morality is always a matter of human choice. If it were self-evident or clear-cut, we wouldn't need debates of this sort. I'd like us to begin by asking ourselves why the ideas which underlie capitalism or free enterprise still seem to have so much power so long after their point of creation. My honorable opponent, Lena Playkoff, argued the case in pragmatic terms in his book. He wrote, historically, capitalism worked brilliantly. And yes, pragmatically, it's true, capitalism worked. But so did slavery, and so did, so did patriarchy, until they didn't work anymore. And both stopped working historically because the moral costs involved could no longer be borne of systems that worked for the lucky few at the expense of the many who were dispossessed because of their color, their health, their age, their family heritage, or their sex. Now let me make my point as clearly as I can. Many economic systems based on moral injustice have worked brilliantly in productive terms, but all have eventually been discredited because their legitimating ideologies could no longer hide their immoral character. So it's really not very surprising that my worthy opponents will persuade people or try to persuade people of the morality of capitalism rather than its functionality. The ideas used to legitimize the activities of laissez-faire capitalism are very seductive because they express to all of us a childhood wish. And that childhood wish is that we could do what we want to do without having to even worry about hurting other people. And if only it were true, if only that childish wish were true and that there were some magic hand that would solve our moral dilemmas for us. Now, I think there's one other dimension of this seductive ideology that we have to explore, and that's the thesis that by being selfish, we're contributing to some positive good, the goal of freedom. Now, who can be opposed to freedom? Even if a small voice tells us that our dream of freedom, our childish dream of freedom, may only be achieved by a few on the backs of the many. And when we're young, the seductive lure of this call to self-interest is very clear. Come along, they say, join the parade. It's a nice parade. You too can enjoy life in the fast lane. And as a young woman, I thought feminists should demand equal rights to join that parade in the fast lane. I thought that being free meant to pursue my self-interest. There was a terrible temptation to reject those values of nurturance and compassion, cooperation and commitment to the community, which women have traditionally upheld. Uh, and I don't want to fly under false colors. It probably wasn't virtue that saved me from joining that parade. I know for a fact it was the realization that this freedom parade was bedecked with signs that said, very few women need apply. One of the most devastating effects of technological capitalism, I think, has been its numbing of the powers of imagination, especially with regard to our ability to envisage new human and communal relationships. I'm a feminist because I feel endangered by this kind of society. I feel endangered when I realize that so-called free enterprise makes billions of dollars each year out of the pornography industry, which desensitizes the men I care about including my sons, to the degradation of women's bodies. I feel endangered by the knowledge that those in charge are willing to spend billions of dollars on weapons to defend their rights to this vaunted notion of freedom while threatening my life, my children's lives, your lives, and the very life of this planet. 
And it's very tempting for the feminists to say a plague on both your houses. I want no part of this corrupt mainstream political order. But that would be a fundamental error. The point is that the ideal of socialism is not only a form of government or a manner of managing the economy. It is a way of life, of living, and of associating, which balances self-interest with concern and compassion with others. It believes with that awful old sexist Jean-Jacques Rousseau that we're a curious species, equally capable of self-love and love for others. And so I'm both a socialist and a feminist because I believe that morality requires a community capable of balancing our childhood dreams of self-assertion with our grown-up sense of compassion and responsibility with others. For me, there's no other strategy that will work and there's no other truly moral choice. Thank you. The uh, second speaker for the capitalists is uh, Dr. Ridpath. Capitalism versus socialism, what is the moral social system? There really are only two central issues in this debate. The first issue is to argue for the moral code underlying capitalism or underlying socialism. Dr. Peacock has concerned himself with the issue of the moral code underlying capitalism, the code of rational egoism, and he has shown that this moral code is validated by man's nature as a rational being and by man's life as his ultimate value. I want to note that in doing this, we have not asserted our moral code, but we have gone to the pains of arguing for our moral code on the basis of man's nature. We have, in fact, done what the debate topic demands so far in making a case for the morality of our system, and I look forward to our opponents doing the same. The second issue in this debate is the application of this moral code to the question, what is the moral social system? And that is what I'm going to address myself to. In moving from the moral code to the question of the proper society for man, the first point to make is that to live, which means to use his mind, to act on the basis of his thinking, Man in a social setting needs one thing, freedom. And this, in essence, means freedom from the initiation of physical force or fraud by others against him. This freedom is man's fundamental social requirement if he is to be able to live by his mind. It therefore is true that it is moral to be free. The initiation of physical force is the primary social evil. A social system built on recognizing the value of freedom is the moral social system. Any social system adopting and institutionalizing the initiation of physical force in any way for any purpose is by that fact an evil social system and an enemy of man's life. Now, let us consider the state, the government, as a social institution. What is the essence of this institution? The government is not merely a set of laws. It is not a cooperative organization. It is not like an insurance company. It isn't a charity. The government, i.e. the state, is properly defined as that social institution, the only social institution that has a legal monopoly over the use of force in society. It is society's only legally authorized social institution. Now combine this fact with man's need for freedom, with the morality of ensuring that men are free, and what do you get? You get the conclusion that the moral government will use its monopoly on force only to retaliate against those who initiate force. You get a government that seeks not to violate man's need to be free, but to protect man's need to be free. You get a government whose only morally legitimate function is to protect the individual's rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. You get the only moral social system that there is, pure, undiluted, laissez-faire capitalism. The principle of recognizing individual rights is our way of safeguarding man's need to be free from force. Rights protect man in his freedom to act. 
in pursuit of his life. Rights ensure that men will be free to think, free to act, free to enjoy the fruits of their actions. Rights protect men from each other. They certainly don't enslave men to each other. Thus, there can be no such thing as rights to the property of others or rights to be the beneficiary of the unchosen actions of others. There are no rights to food, to shelter, to health, to education and the like, precisely because the such so-called rights are in fact coercive claims on the property and the actions of others. These rights are really a wholesale assault on the very notion of rights itself and are remindful of George Orwell's slogans such as war is peace, knowledge is ignorance, and freedom is slavery, of which I'll have a little more to say later. The moral society, therefore, is the society where the government stands ready to retaliate when someone's rights are violated, but it never itself initiates force and violates its citizens' rights for any purpose. The proper function of the government is to supply the courts, the police, and the military, and that's it. This is precisely what capitalism, properly defined, is. Capitalism is that social system based on the total, uncompromising defense of individual rights. Capitalism is the only social system in which all property is privately owned. Capitalism is the only such social system in which men resolve their differences and pursue their individual ends exclusively through rational persuasion, voluntary agreement, and free trade. Capitalism is the only social system in which the initiation of physical force and fraud are abolished from human affairs. Capitalism is the, socialism, the, the social system which recognizes the social needs of man's nature. Capitalism, therefore, as I said in my quote for this debate, is the only moral, productive, and benevolent social system that there is. Such a social system has never yet fully existed. In 19th century North America, it was the most closely approximated. In the 19th century, the principle that men would not initiate physical force against each other in their social relationships was more closely approximated than in any other time in human history. In the 20th century, all vestiges of this principle have been totally swept away in the altruist welfare state orgy of our times. There has never been pure capitalism, and there certainly isn't any capitalism in the 20th century. Nevertheless, we do not advocate capitalism because of our looking at the past. We advocate capitalism while looking ahead, while looking ahead to a free, prosperous, and civilized future. I think you can see why we are proud to appear here tonight as advocates of capitalism as the only moral system for man. Thank you. The second, the second speaker for the socialists and the last in this opening round is Dr. Kaplan. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I wanted to join my colleague Jill Vickers in, in thanking Sandy Shaw and her gang for, for organizing this, uh, this fascinating but not, as I'll tell you in a moment, quite unique evening. You now today know Sandy Shaw as a great organizer of important debates. Someday you'll know her as a great Canadian sculptor. Wait for it and remember the name. It's true. Um, secondly, I want to thank my parents for bringing the rest of my family for that small ripple of applause that our side is getting. I asked my 11-year-old friend Jason Moore to bring some of his kids to applaud for us, and I'm sorry he didn't because we could have had those seats filled and it would have helped my morale a lot. But still, we're going to take you on tonight. You know, it's an important historical evening. It's not the first time, it's the second time. 25 years ago, on this very stage, Yes, I was in third year, and I don't know who sponsored it. David Lewis and William Buckley performed. The form is certainly the word. Um, David Lewis, then, as always, the great voice of, of socialist passion and indignation in Canada, and William Buckley, fay and insouciant, newly up from Yale, his great, his, his great claim to fame, his... Uh, his charming and noble voice of, of approval for Joe McCarthy and all his works. And I want to tell you, with his wit, with his wit, he gave David Lewis a run for his money that night. And I'm only sorry his successors tonight are not doing the same thing, of course. Let's, um, 
I also want to say that I'm not here in my official capacity as a, as a paid hack of the New Democratic Party, and I say that not defensively, not because of Jim Laxer, not because of 15% in the polls. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about it. I, I, they're difficult times, but I mean, it's my job. Uh, but I want you to know I'm here in a private capacity, even though I do get a derisory sum of money for doing that job from time to time. Let's talk about the three social systems. We talked about two. Let's talk about uh, a third for a second that are at the essence here. And let's talk about morality, which simply means how real people live in the real world. And I feel at some disadvantage now that now that John Ridpath has explained that his capitalism has never existed, does not now exist. He does not know when it will exist. And therefore, and therefore can show categorically how it is bound to be the best system in every way. I have some... I have some greater constraints. We have a little evidence on our side that, that's more ambiguous. Democratic socialism is, as Jill Victor suggested, not a narrow ideology. It, it began as an unbounded faith, as a vision of a, of a great future, as, a, as almost a religion that said, this is what the human being is capable of, that there is a way of organizing our world and believing certain things that will suppress that black part of the human soul that will elevate that best in the human soul that's not always found in our world. And that's what socialism was going to do, and, and we can trace it proudly from the Old Testament and the Sermon on the Mounts, all through the diggers and the utopians, through European history, and it's a proud tradition, and it's, a, it's an ethical proposition, and it talks, well, we're in a problem here, it talks just the way they talk. It says that people are at the center of things. Now, they said that people are at the center of things, but I heard them ending up saying that property was at the center of things, that material was at the center of things, that wealth was at the center of things, not for socialism. The touchstone is people and people always, and the ends are clear, simple and clear. One is a belief in an egalitarian society, a belief in the moral equality of all human beings, and therefore a system that function that way regardless of background or regardless of each of our accidental attributes. Secondly, it's a, it's a philosophy that calls passionately for social justice, for the fight forever and forever for civil rights for groups and for civil liberties for individuals. Thirdly, it's a philosophy that calls for economic and social security, not just a larger cake, but a fairer distribution of the cake. My old Polish uncle used to talk about stomach socialism. Don't give me all your fancy ideas, he said. Unless people are full in their stomach, they're not going to be able to talk about dignity. And so socialists, socialists honed in on the welfare state and made that, made that proudly one of the great contributions of this civilization in the era we've lived through. And finally, peace. Now, I know some of you will say that we are being self-righteous, that there are even some on their side who believe in peace. Well, there are people who... <laughs> There are people who espouse laissez-faire and people who espouse free enterprise, and they speak of peace, and they include the people who move back and forth between the Pentagon and the American arms movement, and they include Ronald Reagan and his trillion-dollar arms budget. I know that all of us believe in peace in the same way. I don't want to talk about communism because it's not what we're here to do. We do not believe in any socialism that is not democratic. If it's not democratic, it's not socialism. A tyrant who, who calls himself a socialist is only a tyrant, and anyone who thinks he's on our side or she's on our side and doesn't believe that is not on our side. But let's talk about the issue for tonight. Let's talk about capitalism. Let's say what it is. I, I agree with uh, with our colleagues. I agree. It's about inequality. It's about the rights of property. It's about the right to seek profit. It's the right, about the right to exploit others in order to seek profit. It's it's seek. It's about it's about accepting the role of wealth and property as a as a as a gauge of power of your power and your status. You remember a wonderful old saw from a a French writer named Anatole France a hundred years ago that that in the, in, the, in the sight of the law, rich and poor alike could sleep under the, under the bridges of Paris. This is the, uh, the liberty, I think, that we get from our friends. Look what they say themselves. Look what they say themselves. They've heard it here. They've written it. John Ridpath says that laissez-faire capitalism is the only social system that's based on the recognition of individual rights. Peikoff, Peikoff, I'm sorry, the only alternative to tyranny that's ever been discovered. 
Peacock actually says that the United States is soon going to become like Nazi Germany. Well, Ronald Reagan said last night, last night that the United States is back. Now, what's it back to? Maybe he thinks it's back to Nazi Germany, but even I don't accuse him of that. There is a, there is a hyperbole that, that, that I can't deal with. There is a meanness that I can't deal with. There are a series of contradictions that I can't deal with. They talk about free enterprise, but every free enterprise government in the world regulates its system on behalf of business, which always and invariably b benefits. They talk about laissez-faire, and they are part, hold on please, they talk about laissez-faire and they are part of a moral majority that wants to dictate to us what we do about divorce and about birth control and about homosexuality and about abortion and they want to interfere with our private life. They talk about liberty, they talk about liberty and they talk about liberty and through all the rhetoric, here's what I hear. I hear McCarthyism. I hear the problem of the Japanese Canadians. I hear civil rights in the United States. I hear the padlock law in Quebec. I hear the War Measures Act in, in Canada. I hear the question of labor rights. I hear the question of torture of citizens in Central America by those who talk about individual rights. And I want to tell you that the argument for them is always made by the left, and the argument for the oppressor is always made by the right. We'll pursue it later. So much for their liberty. What I hear is the sound of pencils to the right and left of me, and we're now going to find out what they've been coming up with. We'll follow the same order for the rebuttals. Uh, Peacock, Vickers, Ridpath, and Kaplan, five minutes each, uh, led off by Dr. Peacock. Well, I would need five hours to even comment on the number of absolutely fantastic charges made without any content or foundation. I want to make a few more points. I'm going to try to stay on the topic of the debate, which is morality and not Central America. There is no justification for egalitarianism in morality, nor did our opponents offer any. There is no reason why every man should be equal to every other in anything except equality before the law. People differ in their intelligence, in their morality, in their honesty, in their conscientiousness, and if you talk about social justice, as one of them did, justice consists of gaining what you have earned by your own efforts, not in an equality which requires somebody else's production to be taken from him and given to you when you didn't earn it. With regard to the uh, claim that uh, we are concerned with property rather than people, we deny such a dichotomy. People cannot exist without property. They're not ghosts. A system which preserves human freedom has to preserve the right to the physical goods that you yourself have produced. Otherwise, you can be free in heaven, but on this earth you have to take orders from the government. So if you're talking about freedom, that has to include the freedom to own property. And that means private property. If I have to get the consensus of the people in this room, let alone of the whole country's government, before I can act, I am a slave. And any communal ownership of property necessarily means the negation of all rights. It means dictatorship, and it is of absolutely no difference whether it's achieved by majority rule or by a minority coup. If I am not in the majority that voted, once they establish this system, I am just as much enslaved. D doesn't make any difference how many people voted for that government. So I don't even recognize such a phenomenon as democratic socialism. Once it's socialism, that's the end of anybody's power except uh, the power of the government. Uh, there's many misrepresentations of our view. Our opponents seem to confuse us with the moral majority uh, in the United States. We do not advocate governmental interference in abortion. We do not advocate governmental censorship of pornography, although apparently one of the opponents seems to suggest that she is in favor of that. We do not advocate, we are not, quote, conservatives in the sense of we want government control of the mind. We want government out only for the purpose of protecting individual rights as defined by Dr. Ridpath. So don't confuse us with Jerry Falwell, please. As to the question, uh, the lucky few versus the many who are dispossessed and the constant idea that capitalism is a system of exploitation, that is nonsense. Wealth has to be created. 
It doesn't grow on trees and there's a limitless amount. One person's creation is not taken from another. It is a Marxist myth that you get rich at the expense of the poor. If they're poor, how did you get the money from them to begin with? Uh, one of my, I'm just making these scatter shots because I need 12 hours just to make a dent on how many falsehoods you heard. Uh, one of my opponents interchangeably equated cooperation and commitment to the community. Now, commitment to the community is a very dangerous thing. Commitment to the community is what any dictator advocates because the question immediately becomes, who is the voice of the community? The community doesn't speak with one voice unless you have Adolf Hitler or his equivalent. Commitment to the community means obedience to the Fuhrer. A freedom means individualism. It means you are committed to your own life and you are not a serf of the community. That is an entirely different thing from cooperation, which term she used. Cooperation is peaceful human agreement to do something together. The difference between cooperation under capitalism and under socialism is under capitalism, if you don't want to cooperate, you go your own way. Under socialism, you have a gun held to your head. That is what the difference is because that's what the function of government is. Uh, Dr. Vickers? Well, I guess I've just been declared a ghost since I neither have property nor think that my human dignity is bound up in having property. I don't think your human dignity is bound up in having property either. I'd like to bring this debate uh, down to reality to Canada in the latter half of the 20th century and talk a little bit about the Canadian context in which we're living because I find uh, some of my worthy opponent's observations uh, from the planet Mars or from the 19th century somewhere else. I cannot believe that there is more than a handful, I hope I'm right, in this room who genuinely believe that paying their OHIP payments is some kind of slavery. I cannot believe that most Canadians at this point in the 20th century believe that the dismantling of Medicare would be anything other than an immoral act. And it seems to me we have been enormously fortunate in Canada in that we have had some small important practical experiences with socialism as a community. Now I know it's true that a lot of Americans think that all Canadians are socialist under the skin. Uh, I, I hesitate, uh, I certainly urge you to believe that Pierre Trudeau isn't one of them. Nonetheless, even the Conservative Party of Canada and Mr. Mulroney considers, in his own words, that Medicare is at the basis of the morality of the Canadian community. And I am proud as a Canadian to join with Mr. Mulroney and with the Liberal leadership and with my own party in defending against those who would tear us back to a time when if you were poor, or if you were black, or you were Indian, or you were the wrong sex, or the wrong heritage, if you got sick, you died. I think we have to understand a much more normal political spectrum in which we have some fundamental agreements on the morality of cooperation and on the morality of social welfare to a significant degree. I think we believe that education, that health, that housing and that a number of support systems for those who desperately need them are that which we owe to one another, not in any sense out of slavery or coercion, but because we are fellow Canadians, because we live in the same community, because we are brothers and sisters. Well, I hope when Medicare gets rolled down, you don't get sick. We've heard a lot about rationality. I'm very much in favor of rationality, but I always like to ask whose rationality is being applied to the situation. Is it the rationality of self-interest? Is it the rationality of power? Is it the rationality that those who have impose on those who would like to have? Mr. Pekov asked how you could indeed get rich off the backs of the poor since they didn't have any money to start out with. How do the poor stay poor? How do the poor continue? How do they continue side by side with you in this community if indeed you cannot be construed as, in some sense or another, living off them? 
How many of the men in this room live off the unpaid labor of their wives? That not a key point? Thank you. Dr. Dr. Ridpath. Dr. Vickers has said that she wants to bring this debate down to reality. And by that, she really means she wants to bring this discussion down to an unphilosophical level. Well, I have news for you. This is a philosophical topic. You were invited here to discuss philosophy. You were invited here to discuss the morality behind your views. And I'm expecting you to do that. And the audience is expecting you to do that. I'd like to say that this is the fifth year in a row that I've debated as socialists around this time of the year in a format similar to this. And I've had it with you people. I really have had it with you people. Why it is that I can't get into an intellectual and philosophical debate with you people uh, escapes me. Uh, every time I come into a debate, I'm faced with euphemisms, sarcasms, ad hominem arguments, vagueness, evading the point, appealing to emotion, and I'm simply fed up with this. For you to come in here and intimate that we are appealing to childish wishes, that we are offering seductive ideas, uh, that we are uh, that we are advocating some utopian un future in the unknown, un uh, some unknown time in the future that some of us, but certainly not the rightists, believe in peace. That we are actually advocates of McCarthyism. That we are advocates of torture. That is totally inexcusable. We have been standing here arguing for the repudiation, the initiation of physical force in human affairs. How can you say that we are an advocate of torture, McCarthyism, and all of these things? Are you not hearing what we're saying? Now, this debate is a serious on a serious issue, and the essence of the issue, as far as I see it, regards to socialism versus capitalism, capitalism properly defined as we've defined it, is the role of the initiation of physical force in human affairs, which you have not addressed yourself to. The truth of the matter is the state is a coercive institution, and you, as socialists, are advocating the coerced imposition of your view of the beautiful society on everybody here. That's the truth. You have the gall to have some view of the way men should live and be prepared to force it on everybody through the use of the state. And that is totally uh, immoral, and that is the issue that we are discussing here, and you have failed to address that issue completely. This is not, this is not entertainment. This is a serious issue. This debate is over serious ideas, and you are not really prepared to discuss the issues on the level we're talking about. We have gone to considerable pains to present the argument behind our moral view, just for those of you who are commenting that we are advocating fascism, I'll say it one more time. Capitalism, as we are advocating it as a social system which would repudiate the use of force by anyone, including a government, and that is clearly the moral opposite of any fascist system. Now, the truth is that capitalism as a social system acknowledges the nature of man. It acknowledges the fact that men have to act in order to live, that men have to think before they act, that men deserve the fruits of their efforts after they act, that men deserve the right to own their own property. Capitalism is a social system in recognizing the nature of man, produces a social system or would produce a social system when fully adopted, which would in fact be truly benevolent and truly productive and would bring to all of men, all men, a truly uh, prosperous future. The argument for capitalism is the argument for individualism, the argument for rational self-interest, and the argument for rejecting the barbarism of solving our social problems through the use of coercive institution. Capitalism and moral grounds is completely the opposite of socialism, of fascism, of communism, of totalitarianism, of Attila the Hun, and every other form of status society that you can think of. In that sense, capitalism stands alone, advocating a, a free society a society where men reject this as against all of the other versions of society that adopt the use of force in one form or another. Thank you. And Dr. Kaplan will deliver the last rebuttal. I, I feel kind of terrible. I've ruined John's evening. I, I, I didn't mean to. Uh, I'm sorry he's disappointed. Jill and I tried, and I'm sorry we couldn't satisfy him. Uh, we actually have a different way of looking at it. John Ridpath. We actually think that your words are not all that counts, John Ridpath. We actually think you can test most of your words in practice, and they don't come out as well. So don't tell us that we're not dealing with the issue. The issue is what happens with words when they get applied to people. 
And the mythology is universal of what you promise, but the reality is the opposite. And don't tell us that you're not associated with the moral majority, you're not associated with Bill Buckley. You are part of a crowd that talks about individual enterprise. You talk about laissez-faire. You talk about unregulated capitalism. And so does this large group, and they have important things in common. One of the things they have in common, as you say and all of them say, it comes down from us, from Max Weber to Frederick Hayek, his book, The Road to Serfdom, that any state regulation leads ipso facto to, to the regulation of human beings, to an absence of freedom. Good, clap, that's what it says. But the reality happens not to be that. The reality happens to be that the most prosperous, that the happiest, that the most generous period in human history has been in Western Europe, in North America, in the 25 or 30 years since the Second World War, precisely because the state introduced social services which made more people's lives more decent, more, more, more livable than they'd ever been before. And that's, you dare denounce us for, for, for the evasions and the falsehoods. You talk about socialist governments that rule with a gun. I take it you mean British Columbia. I think, take it you mean Howard Pauley in Manitoba. I think, I take it you mean the British Labour Party and the German Social Democratic Party and the Swedish Social Democratic Party, all of which, as you know, came to power by force, have remained in power by the gun, and have oppressed and enslaved their citizens. Well, forgive me, forgive me. I'm not ashamed of it even with this audience tonight. It's the greatest contribution socialism has made to this society. We moved. We moved the parameters of the debate to the left. So people who before the war talked about capitalism in this way no longer can afford to do it. The issue became not whether there ought to be a welfare state, but what the size of it was going to be. We won that major way of accepting the state's responsibility for taking care of those who, for no fault of their own, couldn't hack it, were underprivileged, were handicapped, couldn't make it. And we forced people to say that was the state's responsibility because the state alone could handle it. That's how it happened. And what's so terrible about what's happening today, what's so terrible about what's happening in the United States and in a tiny way here and with Margaret Thatcher is that these people are moving the debate back to the right where you can speak the unspeakable. Where, where John Ridpath on a, on a TV program can say that, that it is coercion, it is enslavement, it is force for the government of Canada to provide welfare assistance for pregnant teenage kids or handicapped. I have, don't you ho 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 me, I have the notes here, I have the tape here, and I will play it for you. He believes that, he said it tonight. And he, and hold on, he acknowledged that. So please don't laugh at me. Oh, it's really, a, really an easy decision, really a quite easy decision. You, you, you talk about free enterprise, and you talk about laissez-faire, you talk about rights of property, and what you do everywhere in the world in the event is you, is you oppress, and you take the side of the privileged, and the wealthy, and the predator against the side of the wretched, and the destitute, and the vulnerable, and you, you, you take the perpetrators, and you turn them into the innocent victims, and you take the victims, and you claim that they are somehow the enemy. And you do it time and time again. You introduce, you introduce a simple division between whether you're going to be mean about how the world runs or caring, and I think it's an easy answer. We've now reached the time for closing statements. The, uh, the order of uh, speakers is uh, Peacock, Ridpath, Vickers, and Kaplan. But the time is going to be divided into 10-minute uh, segments allotted to each side. I won't time the individual speakers. I will ring the bell at five minutes, nine minutes, and uh, stand up at, at the 10-minute mark. Uh, Dr. Peacock, would you like to lead off for the capitalists? I just want to say that I regard the welfare state as an abomination, as morally evil, 
I do not base morality on the Sermon on the Mount, and I do not put forth a moral case in terms of the lame, the halt, and the blind. I say, if you are talking about what mankind requires, what man or woman requires by her nature and his nature to survive, you have to first say, what does a healthy, unafflicted individual require? Because the weak, the sick, the helpless, by definition, cannot survive on their own. You cannot shackle those who are able to function, allegedly in the name of helping the weak, because then you will wipe out the whole human race. So if, quote, compassion is your value, compassion for those who can't survive on their own, the first thing that you should do is take the shackles off the people who are able to think and produce and create the wealth that everyone requires to survive, including the weak. What the welfare state does is exactly the reverse. This shift in direction that Dr. Kaplan talked about is precisely a gradual tightening of the noose around the necks of those who are able to produce. And the result of this is increasing economic crisis. We're oscillating just the way Nazi Weimar Germany did between a potential runaway inflation and a potential depression. We have hordes of unemployed just as they did as a result not of capitalism, but of all the government controls in the economy. If we have poor, and in the West, poverty is a very relative thing. If you go to the East and see what poverty is. But such poverty as we have here is essentially caused by this very glorious welfare state, which is undermining and making productivity impossible. Moreover, this is not a stationary thing. Every control requires further controls. It produces certain dislocations, which necessitates still further controls. You can check that by looking at history. Every single decade, it doesn't make any difference what party is in office, is, is in office has more and more controls to try to cover the consequences of the preceding controls. And there's only one end of that road, as there was in Weimar Germany, and that is total control. This is the end result of the welfare state, which is only a transition point in history. Now, having said all that, I nevertheless despair of arguing on this topic because I do not think you can argue about politics by itself. Politics is not a primary. Whether you are a socialist or a capitalist depends upon basic philosophic questions. Our opponents have already uh, appealed to the Sermon on the Mount and by implication have rejected reason in the suggestion that rationality is subjective and that one person's rationality is not somebody else's. So they have an entirely different philosophic framework, so it's no wonder that they are socialists. It also happens to be the case that the thing is entirely rigged against us because the universities in this country and in the United States are entirely skewed in favor of the two ideas that socialism depends on, namely the rejection of reason and the insistence on self-sacrifice. That absolutely dominates. You can take a typical college graduate and see it very easily by asking him what he thinks. And as soon as you say anything, he will say, well, it's all a matter of opinion. Who can know anything? There's no absolutes, etc." In other words, he's been brainwashed to conclude his mind is helpless. Except, although you can know nothing, he knows one thing. It's bad to live for yourself. You've got to live for the society, for the poor, or whatever. How he knows that is presumably by revelation. Now, in... In my book, uh, The Ominous Parallels, I point out that this exact same intellectual situation existed in Weimar Germany, and Hitler counted on it and cashed in on it, specifically on this kind of unreason and this kind of intense commitment to self-sacrifice on the part of the Germans. And uh, the result was that socialism triumphed. Nazism is socialism. It's one form of socialism, and it, it is that in theory. And it was that in practice. Let us define our terms. I, I, I think we would have had a definition of socialism by now. Government control over property. Are you going to tell me that in Nazi Germany there was such a thing as private property and free independent action? If so, you have never been there. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, Hitler, Hitler was able to rise to power in Germany because he had no opposition. He had his liberals and conservatives just as we have in this continent. I'll just be, can I take one more minute? His, the liberals in Germany at the time said, let's have 
more economic controls. The conservatives said, no, let's have more intellectual controls by the government. And Hitler said, you're both right, let's have total control. The only antidote to this development is somebody who says, let's not have government control. Let us stand up for the rights of the individual as absolute to his life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Regardless, he has no obligation except to live as a rational being. If, if we can't establish that, there is no hope. So my concluding remark is this. If you go to college, I don't ask that many professors teach reason and selfishness. I think a fair ratio would be one professor advocating reason and selfishness to 200 advocating unreason and socialism. If you would get your faculties to allow that ratio, just one to 200, I would have no fear for the future of the country. But unfortunately, they will not allow is which is the moral social system. We, we have tried to, to present an argument in defense of man's moral right to live his own life. We have tried to present an argument in defense of man's need for freedom, for man's need to have his rights respected. We have tried to present our argument, therefore, for capitalism as the social system which does this, as the only social system that offers man this, that offers man the opportunity to live his life, and therefore the only moral social system. Had our opponents bothered to try and argue for their, the moral basis for their system, they would have had to have argued for man's duty to serve others, for altruism. They would have had to have argued for the moral appropriateness, and Professor Kaplan has admitted to this, the moral appropriateness of coercing men into the good life as the socialists see it. They would have argued for socialism as the social system where the government has the power to force people to live the good life. The issues, therefore, I think, are clear. We have argued for laissez-faire. They are arguing for state management. We have argued for the state as the protector of individual rights. They have argued for the state as our parent. We have argued for individual rights. They have argued for sacrifice to the group. We are arguing that we are not our brother's keeper and they have to morally rest on the claim that we are our brother's keeper. So now the issues are out and you must think for yourself. If you want to know my basic reason for agreeing to engage in this debate, it is because of my belief in the power of ideas. Ideas count. History is determined by ideas. Ideas will determine our future. True ideas will lead us ahead. False ideas will kill us. The Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the 19th century, the creation of the United States of America were all products of ideas. So as uh, this is also true for Nazi Germany, for communist Russia, for communist China, for slavery, for slave labor camps. These also are ultimately the results of ideas. I must say that I literally believe that the ideas that our opponents have propounded would, if followed, lead to poverty, slavery, and the destruction of civilized life on this planet. On the other hand, I believe that our ideas, if followed, can lead us to a prosperous and happy future. Thank you very much. Dr. Vickers will lead off the closing statements for the socialists. Here, I wasn't aware that this was going to come into a debate as to who owns philosophy. Um, I'm willing to concede some share, but I'm not going to hand in my philosopher's badge just yet. Philos, philosophy, desire a love of the truth. Truth, it seems to me, does not just exist as you have been told in the idea or the written word or the book titles that can be dropped. I also believe very strongly that by your deed shall you be known. It seems to me it's important to look rather closely at the deeds of social democracy as they have been implemented here and there in bits and pieces in this country in this century. It seems to me that that has a truth that we should be pursuing every bit as much as my opponent's desire to define my philosophy for me. 
I believe in reason, but I believe in emotion too. And I'm not afraid to say that I think that human beings who believe only in reason should not be entrusted with the running of governments or the teaching of students. I don't believe that altruism is only to be defined in these terms of self-sacrifice, but I do believe in self-sacrifice, not as an exclusive virtue. I certainly don't go around day in, day out saying, how can I self-sacrifice next? I'm very much an old Aristotelian, in that I share a great deal with Leonard Plekhoff. I don't accept Aristotle's... <laughs> I don't accept his, his defense of slavery, Aristotle's that is. I don't accept some of his social programs, but I certainly accept his belief in moderation. All things in moderation, and that of course also includes self-sacrifice. I define what I consider social democracy to be, and a great deal of that definition came out of my experience in this country with those small experiments we have proceeded with. And it seems to me that this is a false dichotomy, self-sacrifice, altruism, selfishness. I tried to say that at the beginning in talking about relative morality, because that is what we are talking about. I know that a lot of people would like there to be absolutes written up there in the sky, written up there on stone, but there are not. There are values that we can reason about with one another. For me, the chief value about which we must reason is how much self-interest we can be expected to be allowed to assert, and I'm a self-asserting person, most feminists are, and how much commitment to others, how much responsibility for others we should expect ourselves to give. I say expect ourselves. I have never felt coerced by my government in the context of providing for others. Nor do I just leave it to tax day, nor do most of you. Canadians are among the most generous people in the world. And indeed, that is, that is probably why it has been possible in this country to get away from the stereotype dichotomies and to see how much as generous Canadians, we are willing to give to others. And sometimes we say to ourselves, we went a little too far there. Okay? Maybe we better pull it back here. And maybe university students ought to pay a bit more for their education and the taxpayers a little less. And we have been able, within the rubric of a social consensus that exists in this country, and I believe it despite some of the things I've heard this evening, to balance, to say, yeah, we want to get as much as we can, we want to assert ourselves, but we believe we are members of a community, and as members of, com of a community, we will spend some time and some property and some of our fabric and some of our energy and some of our love on those people around us. I want to go back to the challenge from uh, Professors Ridpath and Peacock. I want to talk about the logic, the implications of their, of their rhetoric, their positions on individual liberty and the defense of property and laissez-faire. have a quotation, if you bear with me. The, their leaders do not believe in unions or in welfare economics or in suffrage. Their basic premise is that government exists to protect the entrepreneur from undesirable inter interference by other actors so that the accumulation of capital can proceed without restraint. Not so far, I think, from some of the comments that uh, the other side have made or written elsewhere. It happens to be about the government of El Salvador, and it happens to be a new book out of the University of North Carolina. Uh, it was said earlier that El Salvador and Central America are not part of our debate tonight. Forgive me. My socialism can go that far, and what Ronald Reagan does there is part of my socialism. In El Salvador, a reactionary military clique dependent on the United States for its survival tortures and kills at least 100 citizens each week in order to create a climate of fear in which it can stay in power. This gang shares its power with 14 of the richest families in El Salvador who own all there is in that country, together with American business interests, 
and together they've reduced the majority of people in that poor country to a subhuman existence. The United States, President Reagan, in the names of all that he believes in, non-interference in other countries, laissez-faire, individual liberty, and the concern for human beings, sends arms and advisors to these thugs in the name of those freedoms, and shares in the murder of those who are rebelling against such unimaginable brutality and suppression that they obviously must be surrogates of the Soviet imperialist power. When you read, each time I read another unimaginably horrible story of a, of a piece of torture of some poor peasant in El Salvador or in Guatemala, whenever you talk about it, what you're talking about is the logic, the inexorable logic of the philosophy that the large-scale right espouses, the philosophy that says somehow liberty is found in property rights, and the rights of capital take precedence over those of humanity, and that selfishness, however sophistically defined, is morally superior to a humanist egalitarian ethic. We reject it. I have two final quotes, if you will forgive me. One is from a hero of mine who I, I mentioned earlier, David Lewis, the prophet of Canadian socialism. The modern democratic socialist David Lewis wrote in 1956 should proclaim his aims loudly and passionately, as I hope we're doing tonight. The equality of man and woman is the socialist watchword. The moral struggle against injustice and inequality is the socialist duty. To be a strong and powerful voice for the common man against the, the abuse and oppression of a privileged minority is the socialist function and to forge an ever finer and ever higher standard of values and a richer pattern of life and behavior is the socialist dream. I want to say it in less highfalutin terms. I met last year in the Yukon a great old woman who happened to die last week. She was 92 years old. Her name was Hilda Helenby. She spent all her life in the North working with Native peoples, working for feminist rights, working in that strange world for a socialist dream that she had. Hilda Hellaby used to say she wasn't as good on the philosophy of reason as our colleagues. She didn't talk as they do about Kant and Plato and Bergson and Heraclitus. She wasn't good at that, but she was good at saying things. And what Hilda Hellaby said, and I heard her, she said, you know why I do it? When in doubt, take the losing side. The winners don't need us. They're doing fine. That's all the socialism has ever meant. That's what it's all about. It's the basis... It's the basis of a creed that is noble, of a dream that is warm and glorious, and it is as, as true to the bright side of the human soul as man and women have ever invented. I take it that I cannot enjoin a certain number of you in this room to share that dream with us tonight, but some I believe you will, and I hope you do. Thank you very much.